Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today, we hear from Charisma.ai CEO Guy Gatney, who, fresh from producing an immersive gaming experience for Sky, based on its crime drama Bulletproof, discusses why Siri or Alexa will never write a TV show. And Sean Keeble, head of audience development at content giant Banerjee, who tells us why apps like TikTok have become key to the longevity of the Mr. Bean brand, which turns 30 this year. Guy Gadney is CEO of London-based firm Charisma.ai, which aims to create artificial intelligence experiences that combine the worlds of storytelling and gameplay. Charisma.ai recently produced the Bulletproof Interrogation Game, which launched on Sky.com during the pandemic and uses AI to allow players to help the main characters prevent a series of murders by interrogating a suspected serial killer via a laptop. We spoke about how AI can be used by the industry to bring audiences closer to the TV shows that they love, as well as a tool to overcome things like writer's block. Gadney also discusses why Siri or Alexa will never write a TV show and reveals how the creative industries could be set to benefit from a Zoom-style video app of their very own. He began by telling me why AI, which some worry could lead to job losses in the TV industry, actually needs more involvement from humans, not less. We're at a really interesting stage at the moment with this new technology of artificial intelligence, which of course has theoretically been around for a while. The the stage we're at at the moment is that the goals which seem to be given largely by the technology companies as proof of success for artificial intelligence tend to be the creative goals like can AI write a book? Can it write a script? Can it create a uh, song? You, you know, and, and I think in some ways, this is the wrong way to go about it because what you're doing is you're almost like, it, it's like asking a paintbrush to paint a, a, a painting. You know, one could tie a piece of string to a paintbrush and dangle it over a, over a canvas, but really, you know, that's not art in its, in its, in its core sense. So my belief actually is that if you know these new technologies they come through have more of a starting point with creatives with storytellers then ultimately we will get a better better result make no mistake artificial intelligence is going to be the most enormous impact across all industries it will fundamentally change the nature of most of the industries that we work in and that in some ways is the cause the effect of it is a level of automation. And of course, the television industry has seen this for, for many years with post-production software and so forth that, that allows this to happen. But I think as we're moving into this new world and specifically new developments around automatic content generation, this, this new technology called GPT-3, we are starting to see the technology get closer and closer to the point of creation, to the point of storytelling. The mistake that a lot of people are making is is to apply AI as a blanket over a television production and to get AI to try to write a TV show. It simply doesn't work at this point. And in some ways, what it does is that it's it sets back the development of AI in the perception of people who like good TV shows. I think the best examples are where it is selectively deployed to solve a particular issue. Is it fair to say there's a lot of crossover between video games, AI, and TV in the sense that video games, as they're becoming more and more advanced in terms of their storylines and the way they're written, and I'm thinking of a game like The Last of Us, 
that really are pushing the boundaries of storytelling and and do feel very interactive and almost like interactive movies that you're you're playing in where does ai sit within that i mean there's a really interesting relationship between the games industry and and television and film in some way you know each of these industries television film and games look at each other's almost like sort of younger brother or younger sisters you know film looks down a bit on tv and it's like, oh, you know, you're just doing short form content. Um, TV looks down on games. It's like, oh, you're doing things for sort of, you know, t- teenage boys in their, um, in their bedrooms or whatever. And all of those uh, are myths. They are incorrect facts, you know. Um, and, and there is incredible artistry across all of those that is very valuable to be shared with you know, with with each one. So there's an enormous amount that can be learnt from the games industry. And I think it's starting to display on a couple of levels. One is on the more visual level where we see more and more involvement from games engines like Unreal being preview methods for directors to see how the shots might work, to move cameras around in a, in, in a, in a heartbeat on an iPad rather than having to, to move a crane around down through methods of storytelling, questioning a three or five act structure, when you place your audience inside the story. And that's a real challenge. And we, you know, we've run writers rooms with the BBC, with, with a number of organizations around the UK and increasingly in the US as well, about how to sort of just tweak storytelling methods so that the audience is cast inside the story. In some ways, on the face of it, it might feel like it's an impossibility because how, how could you possibly make that happen? Well, the answer really is, is in these new, new emerging technologies that allow that to happen, you know, something as simple as Alexa or Siri. I think the difference that we have with Charisma as distinct from something like Alexa or Siri is primarily around two areas. One is that those two examples I've given are, are effectively either, you know, search engines or, or, the, or their shops. It's Amazon. And the goal, therefore, of those platforms is to get you in and out of the experience as fast as they possibly can. However, in our industry, in the entertainment industry, that's what we are all about. We're about keeping people engaged. We're about keeping dialogue going, keeping the story moving. We're about tension and pace. There is no doubt that uh, companies like, like Netflix predominantly have seen that the technology platform that they've already got allows for interactivity. As we know, over the last few years, they've started to experiment. You know, in an, an experiment, I, th- I find it fascinating that each of their experiments in interactivity has been in a different genre. So it, it's gone from kids into Puss in, Puss in Boots. It's gone factual with Bear Grylls. It's got drama with Bandersnatch and then comedy now with Kimmy Schmidt. Each one of those you can see as a test. We're seeing, we're seeing a very clear signpost from them of where their interests are, how they see it deploying. If it hadn't worked, they would have stopped, but it clearly has. It gains great PR, you know, great audience recognition for each show that they put out. I think across not only the streaming platforms, but the studios and and networks in a broader sense, everyone's been looking at this and exploring how to innovate their stories, how to expand existing TV series, and indeed look into original commissions as well. So my feeling is it will grow because it's working. It will grow because there's money behind it. And the role of AI in this is as a method to 
make it easier to produce what in essence are sort of fairly complex productions. How has the pandemic impacted what you do? Gosh, you know, I mean, what a year it's, it, it's, it's been for this. As well as doing what I do, I'm chair of a theatre and arts organisation in Oxford. And I've seen the impacts on a number of, of, of industries throughout this year. Um, and, you know, not only what's happened, but what is likely to happen into 2021 and 2022. I think what has certainly happened already in 2020 is that there has been a significant behavioural change for uh, of audiences in certain areas. And we need to be incredibly mindful of where those areas are. So, di- you know, digital transformation, which was always one of those strategic thoughts that organizations have, oh yeah, we must do this sort of transformation piece, Uh, but, you know, we'll do it later. And often, you know, that project was given, I don't know, let's say a six to eight month timeline to do. The entire process has happened within a week because of the pandemic. So I think what has happened is that new platforms have been built onto which we can be creative. And using the example of the Offire Station in Oxford, that previously was a stage, there was a stage there. Now there's a stage with a pipe, with a high bandwidth pipe that runs into the stage and back up after the stage onto the internet. So it's no longer just a physical stage, it is now also a sort of digital ready stage. You know, I look at it positively amongst all the negativity that is around there. I I see some wonderful innovations, partnerships, co-productions, experiments, tests that people are doing. Some of it is caused by, you know, the medical reasons for lockdown. And some of it is caused simply because we have been constrained over the course in, in, in many other ways over 2020. And constraint often triggers innovation and creativity. It triggers us to think in ways we hadn't thought before. Those new ideas are valid. They're strong, they're sustainable, and they will last. So we launched the Bulletproof Project at the beginning of uh, the pandemic in April, uh, which was always going to launch then. We launched our interactive comic books in April. We changed the way that we marketed that fundamentally. And we focused a lot on innovation over the course of this year and looking back and, and thinking about how we approach our craft and how we approach technology that powers that. So I, my feeling is that a lot has changed and we are only beginning to understand the impact of those changes now and as we as we lead into 2021 as humans what we like to be is we like to be part of a narrative that's a big that's a macro level perception for me as humans we like to be part of the narrative so if we can extend that now into television craft and say well how do we continue it how do we how do we carry that on that we know we'd like to be part of a narrative so how do we make our narratives more inclusive how do we how do we include the audience in those stories So I think in that sense, I think it's certainly woken a lot of people up to the potential here. We've had more discussions over the last year around this than we did in in, in 2019, certainly. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of eagerness for new technologies, I suppose, as long as it doesn't involve Zoom. I mean, you know, Zoom, Zoom is a conferencing piece of software. Let's not forget that. It's not an artistic platform. It, it is fascinating in its own right, but as we've heard on C21 FM, which I've been listening to, they are, you know, commissioners aren't commissioning sort of Zoom shows or indeed pandemic related shows. We're sort of over that a bit. And Zoom fatigue for me certainly has been a very physical thing. We did do a production. We did, a, uh, we did a, an online version of, of Alice in Wonderland with Creation Theatre in Oxford and Big Telly in Northern Ireland. 
which was huge fun. And I suppose it, it, the, the spine of that was in Zoom. And that was interesting because you are seeing live actors in their own environment with green screens combined with an audience. And that created a level of intimacy, funnily enough, that we weren't expecting. But it, but it was just the spine, you know, sitting around that, uh, supporting that was, you know, handcrafted set design, was a multiplayer game, was 3D games technology that we'd put in, was charisma, you know, where you're talking to the Cheshire Cat and then and having conversations with the Cheshire Cat. So we expanded it around that. But it certainly wasn't a theatre production put into, a, you know, corporate conferencing software. And, you know, my feeling is, well, my, I, I know through recent conversations that the amount of funding that is going into Zoom-type software that is actually better configured for the creative industries are significant. You know, and I think we'll start to see fit-for-purpose technology coming out. And by the way, credit to Zoom. You know, prior to the pandemic, a couple of people were using it and suddenly they got hit, you know, impacted enormously by this and all the issues around security. And they just were not prepared. As, and, and sort of who was. And theirs is a very public growth, evolution, whatever you want to call it. So I'm not taking anything away from Zoom as a company in their own right. I think they've done absolutely brilliantly to, to, to respond. My feeling is it goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that you need to start from a perspective of why are we doing this, you know? And, and that, that is why if you try and make a I, I just don't believe you could make a, a, an engaging TV show using Alexa or Siri because they are designed to do something else. They're designed to be search engines. They're not designed to be storytelling engines. Guy Gadney speaking to me, Nico Franks. Sean Keeble is head of audience development at Banerjee, owner of the world's largest international content catalogue, comprising of over 88,000 hours of original programming and brands such as MasterChef, Peaky Blinders, Big Brother, Black Mirror and Mr Bean, following its merger with Endemol Shine. It's 30 years since that grown man who barely speaks, drives a lime green mini car and has a teddy bear for a best friend, stumbled his way onto UK TV screens for the first time. Since then, Mr Bean has been in continual distribution, as evergreen a brand as any other, thanks to its timeless non-dialogue storylines and visual comedy that translates globally. Mr Bean has spanned not only television and film, but also digital platforms, mobile apps and various product lines, and it's the number one TV brand on Facebook. I asked Sean how the digital team at Banerjee has used TikTok to engage younger audiences with everyone's favourite oddball, as well as why President Trump's plans to ban the app in the US shouldn't put TV companies off from using it. But first, we began by talking about Mr. Bean's impressive social media stats. We launched on Facebook back in 2010, and it's now amassed, the page has amassed over 98 million followers. So for, for context, that's the 14th biggest brand on Facebook globally, and the number one TV brand on, on the platform. So, you know, we are thrilled with uh you know what we've been able to achieve it was a gradual build so you know it's just been really 10 years of building audiences building strategies and and working out you know what what content is working and, and, and what we are you know are doing to maintain realistically lifetime official video views total 20 billion plus um with a lot of the proportion coming from from facebook so yeah for us facebook that was that was a great achievement I think though as well, when we look about some of the other platforms that we're on, Instagram has over 7.2 million followers. On YouTube, we have three uh, 
uh, YouTube channels, uh, which uh, which have been launched. And over the three channels, we've amassed uh, 30 million subscribers. We have had our uh, Diamond Play Award for the for the main Mr. Bean channel, and it's now that channel alone has amassed over 20 million subscribers. So you know we've we've seen great achievements. That was created back in 2009 and amassed over 11 billion lifetime views. And to note again that this is the number one entertainment property in the UK on YouTube, according to the industry standard measurement firm Uber Analytics. And of course, when we talk about TikTok, a little bit of a newer proposition, but um, pleased to say that we have now amassed over 1.8 million followers. So, you know, very large audiences across the platforms and, you know, continuing to grow. We'll come on to TikTok in a bit, but I just wanted to so talk about the the kind of two different versions of Mr. Bean that are out there. And obviously, so it's his 30th anniversary this year. And for the majority of that time, actually, you know, new episodes of the live action Mr. Bean haven't been produced. And more recently, it's the animated series. So which side of Mr. Bean is it that's driving the most engagement? It's a great question. And as you rightly mentioned, you know, only 14 live action episodes. And that could be a challenge in a way to think about, you know, when, when you build digital channels, you know, you are looking for longevity in, in content. But what we have with Mr. Bean is, you know, longevity in the comedic value and the entertainment value. And I think, you know, Mr. Bean as a property and as a character, because he's so physical and, you know, the, the content is agnostic when it comes to language. The, the reach is global. And what we've noticed, whether it's the animated series or whether it's the live action, there is definitely great feedback from a global audience when watching content. And I think when we look at, you know, at a, at a YouTube level, we have a dedicated channel to animation. We have a dedicated channel to live action. And we also have the main Mr. Bean uh, channel, which, uh, you know, splits across the two. And on Facebook, you know, we think about uh, live action and also animation. So when we when we look at what is engaged, I would, I would say it's 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 a fairly equal balance. And and you know, you, you have from a live action perspective, you have a lot of nostalgia perhaps about you know people watching this when they were when they were younger, and now uh, you know encouraging their friends, family, children to, to you know to watch the uh, that the, they grew up on. We as a digital team are able to pull data very quickly. So we're able to see what episodes people are engaging with, what are their favorite moments, what are their favorite sketches, and we can tailor our, our content around this audience need too. So it is very much a push and pull. We have 14 episodes to work with, but the way that we really package these up are into you know, thematic uh, compilations. So we would, we would work with the audience development teams and likes of to, uh, to devise what are the themes from Mr. Bean that people are enjoying? Or how can we think about a, a seasonal trend or a, or, or a content trend to, uh, to, you know, to maximize engagement? And TikTok then. So one of the newer platforms uh, that TV companies can use to build audiences on. How does your use of TikTok differ from a platform like Instagram, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Context, we, we launched on the platform in early 2019. And... The way that we launched was to continue to leverage, you know, the TV materials that we have at hand. So we haven't created anything bespoke for the platform. We're still continuing to, to launch with the 14 episodes that we have. When we're thinking about the user on TikTok, you know, there's always going to be this idea about how the audience 
interact slightly differently, you know, whether it's wanting to reenact or whether it's someone to, to have a reaction towards one of our one of our videos, that, that's really quite exciting. And I think uh, in the early days of TikTok, we had a really great success with a celebration video. So back in 2019, TikTok asked us to partner with, um, with them to launch a Mr. Bean dance challenge. And I think there's a very memorable scene you know, of Mr. Bean dancing. And I think that's very recognizable, you know, even if you've only watched that, that clip on a, on a social media platform, I think people always are drawn to that, to that video. So what we did is we, we posted uh, and worked with TikTok to, um, to create this challenge, you know, and, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to get people doing their own reactions and creating their responses to these videos. And what I can say is that this, um, this campaign, it was so successful that it was rolled out to the UK, Germany, France, Portugal, Japan. You know, it, it went very global. And we actually managed to generate over 40 million views and 13,000 video curation. So I think when we're thinking about Mr. Bean on TikTok, we're really thinking about how our audience can engage with the platform. It's not a very passive platform. You know, we, we want to make sure people can enjoy the content but also more importantly, interact. And what do those millions of views actually translate into in terms of cold hard cash? When we're thinking about a, a platform like TikTok, the monetization uh, differs. So, you know, as, an, as what we define as an AVOD platform, you know, that, that's, that differs to a, a YouTube and a Facebook. So, you know, it, this could be considered a, uh, you know, more of a brand awareness platform at the moment, but also as we build this, these foundations, you know, there, there, there could be more monetary opportunities uh, in the future. Have you noticed people interacting differently with Mr. Bean during the course of the pandemic? One good example is, is if we go back to TikTok very quickly about um, the way that the audience has, has been uh, reacting. So um, there was a, I believe, a challenge or a, or a song that um, in the beginning, beginning of a lockdown, uh, you know, it was, it was almost bored bored in the house it, there was a trend uh, at the start of lockdown so what we were able to do is is create a uh, a lovely piece which um hooked onto this trend and instead of just thinking about how we can tailor the content to the platform we want to think about how we can tailor the content to a trend and and this was something which was was really quite exciting you know we continue to use the tv materials to cut from the live action and we added creative edits and also uh, text in line with some, some of the trending songs. So this was something that we're able to, you know, do, do very simply, but also at the same time, keep Mr. Be Mr. Bean very trending. And that was actually really quite an exciting one to easily grow our, our fan base. So I think that's a, um, that was a good example. Of course, um, there have been a the, the collaboration with uh, the World Health Organization as well uh, throughout the uh, throughout lockdown. Obviously, in the US, TikTok is kind of become quite controversial with Trump having concerns around it. Does does that impact at all in terms of your long term strategy, working and devoting resources to a platform that you know could potentially be banned in certain markets? I think that there'll always always be a need to evaluate each platform that we launch being on when we think about. The emerging platforms, you know, up and coming, we are always thinking, where can Bean go next? We are always wanting to build a global audience too. 
you know, the idea of, of our digital distribution is, is to celebrate the IP and to build almost unintended digital audiences. You know, when we look at Bean, for example, that's from a, you know, a program sales perspective, it travels very well. You know, it, it didn't necessarily, you know, not do well before digital, you know, we've able to amplify that. So I think when we, when we think about the specific platforms, whilst we're going to be always evaluating, I think it's always going to be at a global scale. So one or two markets potentially, you know, may not make, make, make an impact, but, you know, we will always think about what digitally can we do at a global scale. And how about in terms of safety concerns and you're not in control of what, for example, you know, a Mr. Bean video might sit next to on a platform like YouTube or TikTok. When we look at, you know, a platform like YouTube, Mr. Bean Animated now falls under a, a made for kids policy change. So, um, you know, we are we are assured that our, our content, which is tailored towards a kid's audience, is, is protected. People can't share or people can't add to playlists. You know, that there is an element of this is more of a, a passive viewing experience. So people feel safe and they feel like they're in a protected environment. I think we have great relationships with our with all the platforms. You know, we're either preferred partners or, or you know, we are we are highly respected partners with each uh, with each platform. So we have great exposure to uh, to many partner managers where we can always discuss and we can always flag anything that we might deem uh, inappropriate. And how has your experience with Mr. Bean factored into other IP in the Endemol Shine International Catalogue, which is you know in the process of being merged with another mammoth catalogue in Banerjee. So lots of IP to play with. So how are you transferring uh, that knowledge around? That's a very good question. Yes, absolutely. The, the catalogue of 60,000 hours, you know, really you know, lends itself to think about what more can be, you know, launched onto digital. And I think when we take the, the key findings from Mr. Bean, and as I said, because we have a limited you know, number of episodes, we've had to be very creative on how we always keep delivering an entertainment value. And that entertainment value really comes from repackaging, picking out those key themes, those funny sketches, those best moment episodes, and packaging them up in a way that it's new for a viewer. Whether it might be the same episodes, it's still a fresh take on what can be watched. And this, this core foundation really, you know, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, it really is, you know, something that we have to think about when we're looking at any any of our IPs. If I take, for example, a MasterChef, you know, I know for a fact that there are a number of key challenges or, or key moments or, or key judges or key recipes, which, you know, are really enjoyed both from a digital and a linear perspective, TV perspective. So what we can do is we can tailor our content or uh, content um, strategy towards these and start thinking about how we can repackage and, and create these thematic compilations, whether it's top moments from MasterChef or whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a top challenge which people are gonna want to enjoy and, and continue watching. I think it's the element of how we can leverage the TV materials and think about how we can add, that, add value to those on a digital platform. Sean Keeble speaking to me, Nico Franks. That's all for today's episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.